Good morning. I was informed that last week I had a serious error in my teaching, and since it was about lips free from deceit, I better correct it. Fortunately, it was not recorded due to my microphone mishap. There are three additional Fasolino males that will be ready for marriage prior to the 20-year mark. So if you want to mark your calendars, do so. Let's read Psalm 17 again. Hear justice, O Yahweh. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come forth from your face. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have refined me and you find nothing. A purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the words of your lips I have kept from the paths of robbers. My steps have held fast to your tracks. My feet have not slipped. I called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O deliverer of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround my soul. They've shut their fat. With their mouth, they speak proudly. They've surrounded us in our steps. They've set their eyes to bring us down to the ground. He's like a lion that's eager to tear, a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Yahweh, confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Yahweh, whose men of this age, whose portion is life, whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they're satisfied with children, they leave their abundance to their babes, but as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, I'll be satisfied with your form when I wake up. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we come and Lord, we have entered your presence before your face. We are in your house, exposed to your judgment. Lord, we do so on the basis of our Savior, his cleansing blood, and your promise of forgiveness. We ask that as we hear your words this morning, Lord, that you would give us understanding that we wouldn't be fat and sleek with proud hearts that lift ourselves up against you. Lord, help us to know you in this psalm, to know how to sing and to pray to you. Give us ears to hear, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who brought us here. Amen. So Psalm 17 is a lament psalm. And uh, if you remember from last week, it fits within this series of psalms so as, we, as we're moving through the Psalter, we're both looking at the Psalms as individual prayers and songs, but also as part of a sequence that's been organized for us. And so they add richness then to our understanding of these prayers. Well, if you recall, last week we looked at Psalm 15, 
and the song which talks about the requirements of standing in God's house, of entering into his holy hill and being before him. And we notice that fundamentally what's called out for us, what's a requirement to be in God's house, is covenant loyalty to his people. We're called to be loyal to one another. And when we transgress that boundary with our mouths, with our actions, with our hearts, we are not blameless, and we do not have the right to stand in his presence. With that foundation, though, we move forward into Psalms 16, 17, and 18. Psalms 16 and 17 go together. They're parallel. And you'll notice that both of them, they, they begin with this idea of the psalmist, the psalmist David, calling out to God and seeking refuge in him. So it's Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, You are my God. I have no good apart from you. As for all the saints of the lands, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David, he's calling out to God to be his hiding place. So he is entering into that house on the, on the, the, the requirements of Psalm 15, and he's lifting up his hands and he's confessing to God, There is no place that's better for me. I want to be in your house. So Psalm 16, as he's taking refuge, there's a background of enemies who are assailing him. But Psalm 16 particularly is focused on the benefit of being in God's house with God. Yahweh is my portion. He is my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. At your right hand is fullness of joy, and coming from you is pleasures forevermore. There is no better place to be. And so David, even under duress, the first psalm in this sequence upon entering is a psalm that confesses, this is where I need to be. There is no better place for me than to seek refuge here. With that parallelism, and we'll note some of them along the way, that Psalm 16 and 17, they use the same language. In, in order, they're given to us to, to think about and to pray and to sing together. With that background, then, we come to the 17th psalm in which David cries out in a lament to God about his enemies, the ones who are oppressing him, who are hot on his trail. They've surrounded him. They're seeking him out. Their goal is to tear him apart. He uses the expression, they're, they're lions. They set themselves against me. Their eyes seek me out across the whole earth. And so David, he cries out to God again in Psalm 17. And this psalm is an encouragement for us. If it does not resonate with you today, because you do not have enemies that you perceive. We sing this song in trust, in faith, because God has called us in faith to learn these words so that they're ready upon our heart and our lips when the lions come to seek us out. We sing these songs proclaiming that we trust in God, who is the just judge, to deliver us from every evil oppression, whether it's in within the house or outside of the house. And so as we come to the end of the psalm, I'll try to leave time to talk about when, when we should sing this song. I firmly believe we should sing it in worship because God teaches us through it and, and we proclaim our faith in Him through it. But when do we take up this kind of lament on our lips? Under what circumstances ought we to cry out to God, deliver me because I'm righteous and my enemy is wicked? Bring him down to the ground. When ought we to do that? So keep that in mind. But as we look at this psalm, what I want you to notice first is there is there's an inclusion. So from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalms, David, he cries out and he says, Hear justice. 
Your translation might say a just cause or here righteousness. The, the, the word is all, all the same. He's calling out to God. He says, hear justice. Open up your ears, God, and hear. Hear justice. And in the end of the psalm, there's an expression of, of confidence. As for me, I shall see your face. In the NSB, it's translated righteousness, but it's the same word. I shall see your face in justice. To understand this song as we sing it, the psalmist is asking for God to look upon him with the fullness of his judgment and to divide between right and wrong, between good and evil, to make a division between him and his enemies. And so he's calling out for the justice of God. Now that is hard to do. It's hard to cry out to God and say, bring justice, look at me, and divide rightly because my enemy's hot on the trail. There's another piece to this inclusion. So in verse 2, David says, let my judgment come from your face. My translation says presence in verse 2. And at the end of the psalm, I shall behold your face in righteousness. So it translates it with two different words, but it's the same Hebrew word. Let your face look at us, and in the face of God comes just judgment. So that's what David is crying for. Now, for those of you who take copious notes, an outline for the psalm, there is three sections of pleas. David is crying out to God and. and and in three, three kind of differentiated sections, so verses 1 through 5 form the first plea in which God, David is calling on God to listen. And then in verses 6 through 12, he's calling on him to listen and act. So he, he cries out to him again, incline your ear to me. And then in the last section of the psalm, verses 13 through 15, he's calling on God now to act. Rise, O Yahweh, get up. Confront my enemy, bring him down to the ground. Now in each one of these pleas, when he calls on God to listen, when he calls on God to listen and act, and then finally when he calls on God to act in just justice, each one of them has a section. So the, the first part is the plea, and then, and then there's, there's uh, evidence associated with it. So verses 1 through 2 are the plea proper in Psalm 17. I'm just trying to mess up your notes by filling them in in the middle. Verses uh, 3 through 5 then form the foundation of that plea. I am innocent. I'm righteous. I'm blameless before your eyes. And so David discusses his blameless. He discusses how God has proved him. And then verses um, 6 through 8 form the second plea. And, and the, uh, the evidence then, verses 10 through 10 through 12, he's talking about his enemies. They are wicked. So he's telling, he's, he's telling God, this is, this is what my enemies are doing to me. And then in the third plea, uh, beginning in verse 13, and the, the plea is verses 13 through 14, what he's asking God for specifically. And then the final verse of the psalm that supports that plea is David's confidence in God. So he, he has a measure of confidence in God's justice in which he's saying, as for me, verse 15, as for me, when I, when I wake up, I know I'm going to see your face in justice. I know that I'm going to behold your form 
and be satisfied. I will be filled up. And so we move then from his innocence to his enemy's wickedness to finally his confidence in the presence of God in what God is going to do. If you look at the heading for Psalm 17, it's called a prayer. It's just a, a prayer of David. There's no background given. If you think, think through the psalm, there's a number of instances in David's life that would fit this kind of prayer, this plea. Uh, the one that probably fits the closest, and we, we don't know a background, that's, that's partly on purpose, and, but it, it helps us to think about, think about a specific circumstance and then broaden out the application of the psalm. So one circumstance in David's life to think about is in 1 Samuel 24. Remember that God, uh, Gad had brought Saul, he was chasing David, and, uh, and David went and, and in, in the cave, he found Saul and he cut off the corner of his cloak. And then his conscience bit him. He said, I was wrong to do this. I can't lift up my hand against God's anointed one. And after that, at a safe distance away, he calls out, he calls out to Saul. He calls him a, a father. And Saul is, Saul is like a father to him. And he calls out to him and he says, Saul, don't listen to all of your counselors that are crying out for my blood. They've got bloodlust. They're saying that I'm, I'm wanting to lift up your hand, my hand against you. The truth is no. They're, they're lying. They're deceiving you. They've come with lips full of deceit to convince you that I am your enemy. And I do want to read out of that section quickly. Um, so I'll read it for you. This is, this is what David says. He, saw, he says in 1 Samuel 24, 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that Yahweh has, had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. Now, my father, see indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between you and me. And may Yahweh avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea? Therefore, Yahweh, therefore, Yahweh, therefore be judge and decide between me and you. May he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So notice what David is saying there. He's saying, I am innocent. I am not seeking your life. Even though my counselor said to take it, I did not. My hand was stayed. But in that same, in that same speech, he says, may Yahweh avenge me. I will not lift up my hand, but God will. May Yahweh hear and see justice between you and me this day. And he quotes this proverb, From the wicked will come forth wickedness. He says, I'm innocent. He doesn't say anything about Saul. So you can think of that as, as a background, and we'll, we'll come back to that in thinking about when to use this psalm. So we'll look quickly then, hopefully quickly, through the sections. So the first plea. He says, hear justice, O Yahweh, give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from lips of deceit. Now, as you 
as you think through this psalm, what you'll notice is that there's intentional, intentionally in this song, it's full of references to the face, the hands, the head, the lips, the eyes, the ears of David, of God, and of his enemies. And remember that, 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 that helps us then in understanding his call to come before God's face. He's, he's thinking about being in the face of God or in the face of his enemies, before their face. And so he's calling on God, open up your ears and give ear to my cry. It doesn't come from lips which have deceit on them. And so David is coming, and he's coming on the basis of what God has already said. Remember the requirements of entering God's hill. You cannot slander with your tongue or do evil to your neighbor or take up a reproach against your friend. Back in Psalm 5, he says, this is what God does. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, by your abundant chesed, I will enter your house, a house in which there can be no lips filled with deceit. Now, we in our ignorance may not think to ourselves that we can we cannot hide from the Lord. We, we try, we attempt to cover with our lips, even as Adam and Eve attempted to cover their sins, but no one can hide from God. He sits in the heavens and his eyelids see the sons of men. And so David is proclaiming, I have, I have nothing hidden. I can't have anything hidden. So here, justice. He's coming before God as the judge. And he's pleading with him as the one who sees all things, you know that my lips do not have deceit on them. Let my vindication or my judgment come from your face. He's asking to be in the presence of God. And this should remind you of, of, of what Job asked for. When Job has been brought low and his friends have turned on him, they've taken up a reproach against him, what is Job's cry. He says, I want to be before the face of God to plead my case. He must hear. He must know that I'm innocent. Let me see his face, and then my judgment will come. He says to God, let your eyes look with equity. It's just the word equals, because he knows, he believes with confidence that God is the one who does not show partiality. He is a just judge. Now, if you're going to come before a just judge, one that's not limited by the, the frailties of humanity, who has eyes to see and ears to hear, you better be confident in your cause, because God judges without partiality. So as we think about taking this prayer on our lips, it can't be done half-heartedly. We come as God's people, and we come and we ought to come with this, with this claim. I'm innocent. And the, part of the reason we sing prayers like this, songs like this, is to remind ourselves that this is what it means to be in God's presence. There is no hiding from Him. There is no fig leaf that can cover up the, the, the feebleness of our speech, the times when our heart cries out and wants to murder our neighbor Nothing can cover that. 
And so David, he calls out. And as we discussed last week, that's not on his own two feet, obviously. He's been cleansed. He's been washed clean. And, and we'll look at that more in this sequence of Psalms as we continue on in the next coming weeks. But he says, let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. Now, you can translate these as either something God has done in the past tense or something he's inviting God to do. So you've tried me or do it. Try me. Try my heart. You visit me by night and you will find nothing. Uh, John Calvin said that if you're looking for honesty, when we're the most honest with ourselves, because we, we can't trust ourselves, even when we examine ourselves, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that doesn't excuse us. It doesn't mean that we are actually innocent. God is the one who judges. But if you're looking to examine yourself, particularly in a case like this, at night, away from fellow man, where the arguments bubble up, our cry for justice is ready on our lips, at night, God proves us. I don't know if that's true for you, but it, I know it is for me. After a, a day, and I've had some conversation, which I probably ought not to have had, at night, that's when God's word comes to me. And look in, look in Psalm 16. He says, I'll bless Yahweh who's counseled me, verse 7, indeed my mind instructs me in the night. In the night, God comes. And that counsel from his word bubbles up and where it needs to accuse us, it does. But David says, I've been made clean. At night, you visit me, you'll prove me, and you'll find nothing. I'm cleansed. That means that David has repented. He's been lifted up made clean, and he's innocent. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 19, in which there is a statement of uh, hidden errors, so ones which are hidden even from us. But David's not saying that there's nothing I, I don't know. What he's saying is, come upon me. And, and in the words of Psalm 19, let your, your sun shine the bridegroom that comes from which nothing can be hidden from its heat. Shine it upon me. I want to be in your presence. Now think back, back to the Exodus. God comes and he visits the people in the night. And in the night, he draws a dividing line. So at nighttime, he comes and he takes away the Egyptian firstborns and the Israelite firstborns who have sought refuge under the protection of the house of God, with the blood of the Lamb painted on the doorpost, the angel of Yahweh visits, and there is no blame. Because they have found refuge at God's right hand. So David says, visit me by now. You visited me, my vine. You, you've tested me, my version says, it's the word for refined or smelt. So you come up, up to the Lord and he purifies us as silver is purified. It, it's used previously um, back in Psalm, Psalm 12. The words of Yahweh are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. You, O Yahweh, will keep him. 
God is the one with a clean mouth, with clean speech, and he refines us with his word. You've tested me, you've refined me, you've smelted me, you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. There's two ways to translate this uh, this second half of verse 3 into verse 4. One is, is as it's written uh, in, in the New American Standard, and I, I believe most of your translations will follow, follow this idea that I have, I, I've made it my goal that my mouth will not transgress. So I've observed what it means to dwell in your house. I've observed the words of Yahweh that are purified seven times and I have made it my goal to not take up the kinds of words, the reproaches, the slander, the deceit that make me unfit for your house. And this would, this would then fall in line with what David is, is saying to Saul. I have not taken up against your life. I have not led men against you. Saul initiated that battle out of his pride. Now there's another way to understand this. You could translate it that as for the deeds of men by the word of your lips, I will not pass over them with my mouth. And under that kind of translation, instead of just the idea of avoiding slander, now the, the proclamation would be that I do not pass over, um, I do not pass over wickedness silently. And we saw that idea in Psalm 15 as well. They, they, they go hand in hand, neither taking up evil upon our lips or being silent when we sit in the presence of slander. So um, failing to, failing to uh, reproach those who need reproaching. I don't know which one it is. And in some sense, it, it doesn't matter. David is saying, with my mouth, I am innocent. The end of verse 4, he says, I have guarded, I've kept, I've guarded from the way of the robber or the violent or the destroyer. And instead, my steps have, have held fast to your tracks and my feet are not shaken. So this uh, triad of, of statements, I've kept from the way of the violent. So think back to Psalm, Psalm 1. I don't walk in, in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Skip the first one. Skip the middle one. Um, but the, <laughs> the idea is there. I've kept myself from the feet of the, the destroyer. And if you think about the confrontation with Saul, what David would be saying is, I haven't become like the one who's chasing me. His feet have set themselves against me, but I have not returned violence for violence. I haven't learned from the one that is oppressing me. And too often, that's the case for us. We learn the ways of those who are oppressing, and we take them up as retribution. But David says, no, I, I have kept my, my feet from their ways, and instead, my steps have fallen in your tracks. So think of the image of a, a snowfall, and, and God is walking in front, and David's carefully placing his feet in the footsteps of God. Where you go, I go. By the word of your lips, that's what directs my feet. And so I'm held back even when my counselors say, now you have the opportunity. You're right. God has anointed you. Take his life. Still, I'm held back. 
because I cannot lift up my hand against God's anointed. And so in verse 5, then, we have the conclusion to this first plea, my feet have not been shaken. Remember that that's the word of, verse, uh, of Psalms 15, 16, 17, and 18. So whoever does these things, whoever, whoever is right to abide in the tent of the Lord, he who walks with blamelessness and does righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, this one who does all these things, verse 5 of Psalm 15, he who does these things will never be shaken. David is saying, my feet haven't been shaken away from your place, from dwelling in your house, from, from walking with integrity, even when no one can see. So that's the first plea. David says, I'm innocent. As we think about that, and we think about the potential of coming oppression or current oppression from within God's house or from outside of it, the basis of our plea is, I belong to you, and I am innocent. We can't come to God and say, divide between me and the wicked because I'm wicked and they're wicked. God promises to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curses you, but, curse you, but, when God's people set their face against God, they have put themselves outside of God's house. And God turns his face upon them in judgment because God does not show partiality. What does that mean? As we come into God's house, as we come to plead with him, our conscience has to be cleared. If there's sin, whether it's nagging or overhead, whether it's sin against the person, it has to be dealt with. And then we come with confidence on the basis of the blood that Jesus has bought us, cleansed us, and transformed us. And we are his children having the right to call upon him to keep his promises. And that is David's plea. This is what you said. I'm innocent. Now come. Verse 6, second, second part of the plea. I've called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. David trusts that God is the one who answers when, when we ask. He says, extend your ear, so bend it down from the heavens. You're up there. I'm down here. Bend your ear down so you can hear me and hear what I'm saying. Verse 7, wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand. He's asking for, uh, for loving kindness. This is, this is the word chesed. He's asking for God to keep his covenant. Keep your covenant faithful, faithfulness, what you promised to me, what you promised as the righteous God who judged justly, do it now. And he says in verse 7, there's an adjective in my translation, wondrously. An adjective is an amended translation, so, you know, but, but the, the words, there's a root word, and then there's this adjective, which is a, an emendation. It adds a letter to it. So you can translate this as do wonders. So thinking back on the, on the Exodus, God came with wonders. He showed forth with wonders, and he rescued his people. He divided between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And he did that on the basis of his promise to Abraham. Now, the root of that, of that word, which is what is in most of the text, is the word for set apart or make a division. So there's a way in which it's done. Show your wonders. But the, the root of it is make a division by your covenant faithfulness. And so I'll just show you. You don't have to turn there, but... Um, Again, in the Exodus, this is where this, this word comes to the forefront. Um, 
So Exodus 8, 24. Uh, yes, 8.24. Nope. It's earlier than that. My notes are wrong. We'll skip to the next one. 9.4. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. He did that, he did that in three times in the course of the plagues. He did it with the insects. He did it up front with the cattle, and then he did it with the children of Egypt versus the children of Israel. And in each time, it uses this word, Yahweh makes a distinction between his people, their livestock, their land, their children, and the Egyptians. And so that's what David is asking for. Show your wonderful division between the righteous and the wicked. It's another call for justice in the presence of God. Be just. I remember um, when the Israelites sinned at, at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, God says, Moses, you take them from here. I can't be with them. And Moses prays, and he prays, well, well the world's going to see, and this is what they're going to say. And remember, remember that without you, we're nothing. And, and what he says in Exodus 33, 16, he uses this word, and he says that we need you as a division a, a setting apart of us. Without, without you coming with us, we have no set-apartness from those around us. So David's calling on God to do that. Set me apart. Set the righteous apart. Put your blessing on us and show forth your wonders. Wondrously show your, your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. So the basis of his plea is, God, be a deliverer. Be a deliverer to me because I've sought refuge. I've sought refuge in your presence, at your right hand, in your house, before your face. And I take refuge from those who stand up. So in the, the context of a courtroom, then you have the enemy standing up and making a proclamation against David. If we take 1 Samuel 24, the, the proclamation is God, David has lifted his hand against God's anointed. David is trying to kill the king, the one that God set on the throne. And David says, no, I'm innocent, so divide based on your covenant faithfulness. You're the one that sees the hearts and the minds of men. Deliver me. And remember that in David's case, there is no further courtroom. There's no one else that he can plead to. His fight is with the king sitting on the throne, the one that God put there. And so the only, the only supreme court that David can come to as he's running for his life is into the presence of God. And so he says, I take refuge with you at your right hand. And remember that connects back then to Psalm 16 as well. In your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. I've set Yahweh continually before me, Psalm 16, 8. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is my confidence. And so stop those who are standing up against me. And remember Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in judgment. So as they bring their case, the accusation against God's righteous they're little Satans accusing God's people. They will not stand in judgment. And so David pleads with him, hear now my plea and act. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy 32 
we won't turn there, but when God rescues the people, and as they're sitting in the front of the Jordan, Moses sings this song, and he's looking back on the Exodus, and he says, this is what you did. You kept us, your people, your covenant people, as the apple of your eye, and, and you flew over us in the form of the Shekinah glory, a fire by night, a cloud by day, and we, have, we, we were under, the, under your shadow, protected. In the shade of your wings, God came like a bird, and he plucked up his people out of the hand of the oppressor, and so he's calling on God to do that. What you did for Israel in the Exodus, do now for me. Keep me, guard me. It's the same, same word as, as David. He says, I've guarded my past. He says, now you, you, God, guard me. Guard me as the apple of your eye. That's an English idiom, not a Hebrew idiom. And, and so it doesn't literally say apple. It says, you shown. Guard me as, and, and that can be translated, some people think it should be translated as the little man. So like the reflection you see in your eye if you're up close and you look at somebody and you see their reflection. Others would translate it in its other uses in Hebrew as darkness, so the pupil of your eye. In either case, it's the part you protect. But not just is it the part you, you protect if, you're, if you are in the eye of God. He's saying, look at, look at us again. Keep your eye fixed on me. I will walk in your paths. I'm, I, uh, keep me as the, the, the pupil, the man in your eye. Guard me then in the shadow of your wings. We're running out of time, so we won't trace down all of what that means. Um, but God protects us then in his shade. You can look up later Isaiah 4. It's a short chapter. Read it. God's glory cloud comes over the top and it shades us. It protects us. Verse 9. What do we need guarding and protecting from? From the wicked who ravage me. Or literally from the face of the wicked who ravage me. From my enemies who surround my soul. They have shut their fat, is the literal rendition. So people argue about this. You read the commentaries, they don't know what it means. Uh, you read the ancient commentaries, they also don't know what it means. Although a lot of people have, have ideas. So there's a simil similar phrase in Psalm 119, verse 70 in which the translation is, is, is the fat that covers the heart. And so uh, there's, it's translated as an unfeeling heart. It's covered in blubber. And the, 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 the uh, uh, second phrase in the Hebrew poetry there is, but as for me, I have my eyes on your law. I think it's clarifying, though, if you think again about Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. We read it. Hyde read it for us this morning. What happened was God raised up his people. He protected them as the apple of his eye. He, he, he placed them under the shade of his wings. He flew over them through the wilderness, and he planted a king at their request. And it, it says in that psalm that Jeshurun, he had all the blessings of God. And this will, will help with the understanding of the psalm. He had all the blessing of, of, of God, but he grew fat, and he kicked. So if you take these two things together, they've, they, they, they've uh, shut themselves in, in fat. And with their mouth, they speak proudly. They go together. They've taken God's blessings. And because of that blessings, their heart is lifted up in pride. I do not need God. 
Uh, I do not need his people. So think about Saul. Saul was a humble man when he was placed on the throne. But in the end, he was grasping a hold of God's blessing. He's saying, and not in a good way, saying, I, I will keep this regardless of the way that I must keep it because I have the right. His heart had been lifted up. As an example of what would later happen to Israel and all the kings who walked in his footsteps, Jeshurun grew fat and sleek and he kicked at God. And so David is saying, this, this, this is my enemy. This is what he looks like. They're covered in fat. These two words are used together in Judges 3. It's a wonderful story to read to your children. Eglon the king was a very fat man. And he had, he had risen up over the people of Israel. God used him as, a judge, as, a, as judgment on his people. But he was proud against God. And so Ehud came with his left-handed sword. He thrust it in. And the fat closed over the hilt of the dagger. Then God's people were rescued. And David is, is, is calling on God like that. This is my enemy. He's full of pride. And he's, he, he's not just my enemy. He's your enemy. He's lifted up his heart and pride against you. And so come now and rescue me. Vindicate me and you together because we are one. I dwell in the house of God. Verse 11. They've now surrounded us in our steps. A couple chapters later in 1 Samuel, David is surrounded. Yeah. Chapter 26, 25. He is surrounded by, by King Saul. He's got him. He's on the mountain. King Saul's got, got his army on one side and he's moved around and David has no escape. At verse 11, verse B, they, they've, they've set their eyes and it's the same word as David calls on God to, to bend down, to incline your ear. They've set their eyes, they've extended, inclined their eyes over all of the earth. And their goal is to bring David down. Now in that instance, you remember how God rescued David. And keep this in mind when you read Psalm 18. In that instance, God, God rescued David by war with the Philistines. So the Philistines were, were coming and, and marauding and Saul had to leave and David was set free out of the trap that had been sprung for him. So David says here, they've surrounded me. They're, they're, their eyes are set. It's like a hungry lion and is about to pounce. And that's exactly what he says in verse 12. He's like a lion that's eager to tear. It's like a young lion lurking in hiding places. He's bent down in the grass and he's about to destroy me. And so he calls on God, Rise up, O Yahweh, confront him and bring him down. He pictures the king as a wild beast. And the lion is a picture of a king. It's a picture particularly of, of a Gentile king. It's an unclean animal. And so throughout scripture, there's, there's lions. They're not always bad. In fact, on God's chariot, there's a lion. There's two unclean animals and two clean animals on, on his cherubim faces as you turn it around. But here, the lion, the wild beast of the earth has come and he's trying to tear David apart. And so David's plea in verse 13, third time around, he pleads on God now to act and he says, stand up, arise. It's the, the word that he used of his enemies. They've stood up. They've risen against me. Now he says, now you, Yahweh, rise against them. Confront him. Bring them into your face and bring that beast down. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Yahweh. Now again, there's two ways to translate this, this next section. 
deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, or the King James, so the, 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 the older King James Version translated, deliver my soul from the wicked who are your sword, and from men who are your hand, O Yahweh. And the New King James, as well as the NASB, and most translations say, no, it makes more sense to translate it this way, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. Now, there's truth in both ways. God uses the wicked as his sword. We read that last week in Isaiah 33. It does not excuse them. It does not set them apart. In fact, even, even in, in 1 Samuel 25 and 26, God rescues the David, by, David by using the wicked. He, he, he calls the Philistines up, and they are his sword to rescue David from Saul. But at the same time, and I, I think that sometimes, in, especially in poetry, God allows this confusion, and we want to choose but there's two meanings there, and both are true. So David cannot lift up his sword or his hand against Saul. He's the anointed of God. He does not have the authority in a judicial sense to bring Saul down. And so he says, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. You are the one who has to act. And that's what he said to Saul. He says, God will bring judgment. God will bring avengement for me. Verse 14, from men with your sword, O Yahweh, from men of this age whose portion is life, whose belly is you fill with treasure, they're satisfied with children, they leave their abundance to babes. This is also a wonderfully confusing section in Hebrew, or so I'm told. Um, and I, I read all through history, and I, I think it comes down to this. There are, again, two ways to understand what, what David is praying about these men. And I think both of them are intended. So the first way is from men of this age, or you could translate it old age, whose portion is life, you filled their belly with treasure and they're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to babes. It's a parallel to what Job prays in, in Job 23. They've had their time. And he's crying out to God and he's saying, why are these men old. They're wicked. They should die when they're young. Why is this man old? Why is he filled with your treasure such that he's got children and grandchildren and there's an abundance to leave to them? And so it's a, it's a lament to God about who these people are. But then put in, in, in juxtaposition with Psalm 16 and with verse 15, what we find out is that David, while he laments, even he understands that their portion is this life. So in the one sense, it's a blessing, but in the other sense, David says, my portion, my satisfaction, what I'm replete with, will be the presence of God. And so both ideas here, I think, are embedded in the text in which it ought not to be when we read through God's word that the wicked, they, they endure and they have children and children's children and, and an abundance of prosperity to leave to them. And so David says, God, you're the God of justice. Come down. Look with your eyes and see, I trust that you are just. But at the same time, he's saying, I do. I trust that you're just. And so they have their portion, and I have mine. So that word portion and the word satisfaction, again, are, are from Psalm 16. Yahweh is my portion, my inheritance. He's my cup. He supports my lot. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And then the word satisfaction, at least in the NSB, coming down to Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path, the way of life, which my feet will not 
will not walk away from because in your presence there's satisfaction, there's fullness. I'm replete with joy. And so David's expression of confidence in verse 15 is juxtaposed then against his enemy. David, uh, if we take, take Saul, and I think it's helpful to think about Saul, he says he's seated on the throne, his portion is life. He's got children and children's children, and his heart is fat. He's lifted up his heart against you, O God. But as for me, as for me, I shall behold your face in justice. David can pray with confidence, I want God to come. I want God's vindication. And in the sequence of the psalm, remember he says, you'll visit me by night and you'll find nothing. So we get this idea of David praying this as he lays down. My conscience is clear. I'm innocent. I'll sleep like a baby. God, you come and you look upon me with a face of justice. Look and judge. And when I wake up, when I wake up, tomorrow I'll be satisfied with your face I'll be satisfied with your justice and I'll look on your form and I'll be full now in the in the the first take on this is it's a, it's a song for immediate prayer you pray it when you lie down and you trust in God that when you get up he's done it he's judged righteously his eyes see his eyelids test the sons of men he's not asleep His ears are not plugged. The God who sits in the heavens looks down and sees. And so David can pray, I will be full with your form when I awake. Now, when you read this in the light of Psalm 16, it takes on an additional expectation. Because David, he prays, My heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh dwells in security. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so there's a dual sense there in which even like Job, he prays, even though I'm dead, when I awake, when I'm lifted up in life eternal, I'll stand before God the judge, and I will be satisfied with his face. I'll be filled with his form. There's much to be said about that, but we don't have time. Um, So, in the five minutes left that we don't have... I want to talk about two things. How and when do we pray this prayer? So there's injustice, there's a decision to be made. And I've been using Paul's letter to Corinth as a a foil. So if you think about what Paul says to the Corinthian church, there is a judgment to be made in the house of God, and there's people to make it. That judgment occurs when God has placed an authority for which you to call upon. So in the case of the man who has his father's wife, there should be judgment. So you don't pray this prayer, oh God, judge him, because there's nothing we can do. Instead, God has placed the authority to bring judgment for a visible, objective sin. And that's how we're called to respond. So when there's a division in God's people, when there's an injustice that we perceive or is real, God lays out a path for us to take. We go to said brother. We confront him. We come back with two or three witnesses. We confront again. Then we come back before the church and we confront again. And so God has placed then authority, judges, to decide. And Paul makes clear that that matrix, what we judge upon, is visible, objective violation of God's word. 
Now, what about the case where there's not two or three witnesses? Or the case where it is not visible, meaning you can come with a claim against me, Caleb, you are proud. You may say that's visible, but it's not. It's a motivation that's hidden within the heart. And then what do you do? Well, then you cry out to God. God is the one who judges and sees. Now, one more note here in 1 Corinthians 6. He, he, he talks about this. He says, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So when there's a division and there, there is not reconciliation, what do you do? Do you go to the outside court? And Paul says, No, rather be wronged and lift up your prayer to God of innocence and then trust in God's judgment. And that's important. When we come before God and we, we call God to look at us, we have to trust that he will see and we are sometimes wrong in our assessment of justice. And we must trust God, particularly this comes to bear when God has given authorities on earth to judge that decision. We look at the authorities that God has given, the judges that he places, whether they're governmental judges or ecclesiastical judges, we're called upon to trust God in and through them. And that's when it comes to visible objective sin that God has brought forward and brought witnesses to bear. Now, when that is not the case, he says, don't take up your plea before the ungodly because it's our role to judge them. Instead, plead your case before God and rather be wronged. So this will happen more frequently outside of God's house in which there is injustice and there is no higher court to go to. You've run out of appeals at the Supreme Court and what do you do? You submit to God's justice and you say, God, I'm innocent. And though the Supreme Court of the United States stands wrong, I stand before you and plead my case. And then trust. This song is a proclamation of trust. I trust that God judges righteously. And though I sleep, when I awake, I'll see his form. And I said one more thing three times, so you only have two more. Last place I want to turn, if you would turn, turn with me to 1 Peter. This song is a lament song. It's, it has imprecations against the enemy. It has praise for God. But it is a psalm of confidence in God as the just judge. So I want to read for you three verses through 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Of our Savior, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he entrusted himself. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he bore himself and our, our sins and his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Jesus submitted to the authority on the earth even when they were wrong. And he did it because he entrusted himself to the one who judges right, righteously. So that on the last day, he's lifted up. Our Savior is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 quoting from Psalm 34, For the eyes of Yahweh are upon the righteous, his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of Yahweh is against those who do evil. And so leading to the conclusion of 1 Peter, look with me in verse 14, chapter 4. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer. Don't put your footsteps in those tracks. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not feel ashamed, 
But in that name, glorify God, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let all who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You should hear the echo of what Jesus did in that command. Entrust yourselves. We come before God, the just judge. The judgment of God ought to begin with his household. Let his face shine upon us. If you would stand and pray with me. Father, we trust you. You come in justice and righteousness. You judge equally and you see and you hear all things. We are your people, created by your hand, led as the sheep of your pasture, made clean by the blood of the Savior. And so, Lord, we confess that we want to stand in your presence. We want your judgment. Because by your grace, by the blood of Jesus, it's good. And so we entrust ourselves to you this morning, our good and faithful God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.